As he was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him, saying, My daughter just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. Just then, a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe, for she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players and a crowd lamenting loudly. Leave, he said, because the girl is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. Then the news of this spread throughout that whole area. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men approached him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I can do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Let it be done for you according to their faith. And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus warned them sternly, Be sure that no one finds out. But, this, but they went out and spread the news about him throughout the whole area. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Lisa. Well, it's good to be back after two weeks away. I've missed you all. And um, it's just making me smile to sing with you, to be with you, um, and to worship as a church family. Um, So I I did have a good two weeks away. Our family did have a good two weeks away. We're thankful for the opportunity to have a chance to rest and, um, and refresh. In our current sermon series, we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew. We're focused in on chapters 8 through 12, and we're calling this series, Why Follow Jesus? The reason why we're calling uh, our series this is because as you look at this section of the Gospel of Matthew, we see that Matthew wrote this part of Jesus' story, one, to cause us to ask personally, Where am I with Jesus and why? Am I a follower? Am I resistant? Or am I in the crowd, uncommitted, interested, but hanging back? So he he wrote it to cause us to, to wrestle with that question and to continually ask that question, but also to convince us, to give us reasons to become followers of Jesus if we're skeptical or if we're unsure, or for those of us who are followers of Jesus, to keep on following him, no matter where he tells us to go, and no matter what he says to us. Because Jesus will often lead us in ways we don't expect, to do things we don't want to do, and to believe things that are hard. And when that happens, we need a strong answer to the why question that's rooted in Scripture And rooted in who Jesus is. So far, we've looked at Matthew 8 and 9. And so we've seen all kinds of stories, Jesus doing incredible things. All these miracles lined up back to back to back to back. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm reading these things, when you're hearing these things read, as we just heard, back to back, to back. Three miracles here. There's ten total in these two chapters. It kind of, for me, tends to all blend together. 
It's a lot to take in. We're wondering sometimes, did, did these things really happen, these miracles? And if so, why did they happen and what does it have to do with me? And we know it doesn't mean that Jesus gives us a guarantee that he will heal us, a guarantee, although he can and does. Each one of these um, miracles, each one of these incredible acts that Jesus has done and that we read about is meant to have a step back and see something about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Those key questions. So in the passage we just read together, there's these three stories. We're going to look at all of them together, but we're going to focus mainly on the first two, the first two um, healings. Jesus healed a woman who had been suffering from a chronic condition for 12 years. And right after that, his most powerful miracle yet, he raises a little girl from the dead. And then right after that, he gives sight to two blind men who were on the road just begging him for mercy. So as I was reading this this week, I was thinking, well, why more? Why is Matthew giving us more? And why these miracles in particular? And here's what struck me, and I'm excited to walk us through this this morning. There's something here that actually connects those three healings, those three miracles. And it shows us something incredibly important about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And what connects these three stories is touch. It's touch. All the touching that's going on. If you notice, all three people were either touched by Jesus or touched him. When um, I was in the third grade, it's either the second or third grade, I can't remember, I did a science project, and the, the title of this project was The Sense of Touch. And I was allowed to experiment on humans because I was in a private school. The public school rules are you can't, you know, do experiments on humans for obvious reasons. So what I did for my experiment is I had everybody put on different things on their hands, different barriers like um, a cleaning glove or an oven mitt and see if people could identify different objects like an onion and a baseball and all, all kinds of things like that. So my hypothesis in this experiment was the greater the barrier, the harder it is to identify the object. Very brilliant hypothesis that I came up with. And it proved true. Amazing. I share that because isn't how that, isn't this how it often feels with God? That there's sometimes a barrier between us and Him. There's a barrier of His invisibility. There's a barrier of knowing His future plans for us. There's a barrier of knowing He's the eternal, infinite, unchangeable Spirit. And often there's the barrier of our suffering. We wonder what God is doing or the barrier of our disappointment. And it's harder when we sense those barriers to identify God at work in our lives, to sense him. It's harder for us to feel like he's really there, like he's really alive, like he's really at work. These three stories tell us that God has removed all these barriers. He is a God that we can touch. 
Look at verse 18. We're going to run through all these touches. This father comes to Jesus. His daughter um, has just died or she's on the brink of death. He says, but come, lay your hand on her and she will live. Verses 20 and 21, a woman bleeding for 12 years. She touched the end of his robe. And he gives us her thoughts. If I just touch the end of his robe, if I just touch it, I'll be made well. Then in verse 25, he went in. The little girl had died. Jesus took her by the hand. And the girl got up and she lived. Then again in verse 29, these blind men are crying out to him. Heal us. Have mercy on us, son of David. And it says, what did Jesus do? He touched them. And their sight was restored. Now, here's the thing about all this touching. None of it was necessary. None of it was necessary for for Jesus to do any of these healings. Yet over and over again, Jesus touched. Three things I think we can learn from that. First, you can fill in the blanks now or as we go. Why? We look at the situation that these people were in, and we learn why we need a God we can touch. We look at their response. What was their response to Jesus? And we learn the way to a God. How do we get to Him? The way to a God we can touch. And thirdly, we look at the results. What happened as a result of Jesus' touch in these people's lives? And we see the power of a God we can touch. The need, the way, the power. First, the need. Why do we need a God we can touch? Jesus has been doing and saying things we've been seeing this week to week. Last week, Pastor E.C. mentioned this as well. He's doing things and saying things only God can do. Only God can say. He's claiming to be God in the flesh. And if this is true, then we're meant to look at Jesus. And this question applies to him. What What would God do if he were to become human? What kinds of things would he do? What would that be like? And the answer from this chapter and from chapter 8 as well is that he would have a ministry of touch. He'd have this ministry of touch. He'd be going around very intentionally touching all kinds of people who were broken. People who are considered the untouchables. And he would heal them. Now, the question then is, If he's God, why not just heal them with a word? Why not just heal them with a thought? Why all this touching? To answer that, let's just zoom out and start at the very beginning. As far back as we can go. God created the human body. So he's the inventor of touch. And when he designed touch, he designed something very powerful. I know some of you in our church community are more touchy, you know, than others, like hugging and squeezing, and, and that's great. Um, and some of you, just, just by your look and by your body language, you kind of give off the sense like, don't touch me. <laughs> that's not my thing. And that's okay, too. We're all different in that way. Uh, one of the five love, love languages is touch. One of the five most central ways that somebody feels connected and loved and known by another person is by physical touch. Some of you may have that if you've done the love language test. It's one of my um, love languages. 
Many studies have been done on the necessity and the power of touch for everyone, whether you are a touchy person or not. A lot of these studies have been done on infants who lack touch in their very, very early days and the impact that that can have on their development. It can even lead uh, to physical illness, illness and even death. The point is, God made us to need touch, even to live, to feel connected, to love and be loved. So what if the invisible, infinite God who made touch became touchable? What difference would that make? It makes all the difference. That's what these stories show us. Here, these two people, the first two miracles, people whose lives had left them wondering, is God even there? Does he care about me and my situation? Can he help? They were desperate for a God that would come close to them and help. Let's look at the father first. Can we just imagine his situation? In verse 18, it says he was a leader. He was a leader in the synagogue. He was a religious leader whose daughter was on the brink of death. Literally, the translation is, my daughter, he says to Jesus, has now come to the end. Come lay your hand on my dying daughter. Maybe he heard about the leper. Maybe he had heard about Jesus' touch. And he says, I've heard what your touch can do. Come and help. He was looking for a God who could meet him, who cared about his grief and loss. And there is perhaps no greater grief and loss than losing a child. That's where he was at. Now, can you imagine this? Can you imagine experiencing grief and loss without touch? If you lose someone close to you, someone very dear to you, imagine going through that experience and all the grief and all the pain, and no one touched you. No hugs, no hand on the shoulder, no one holding your hand. And one of the most difficult things about grieving and loss is that no one can get inside you to feel what you're feeling. No one can really say, I know what's going on, but the closest they can get to that is being present with you and touching you, right? Because touch communicates, I'm with you. I'm hurting with you. I love you. Let's look now at the woman. She was suffering a chronic condition. It says for 12 years, the other gospel accounts tell us she had tried everything to address this. She'd, she'd used all of her money that she had saved on different doctors to address and heal this condition. And nothing worked. It's likely that she suffered from a type of bleeding unique to being a woman, so she was considered unclean. Scholars say because of this, probably unmarriable, or if she was married, she was divorced. From the story we see, it's not just her physical ailment that caused her the pain, but it was the shame that came with it. She just wanted to sneak up unnoticed, it says, from behind Jesus and just touch, just get a little touch. Maybe that'll be enough. She didn't want to be seen. She didn't want to be noticed. So much shame. So much shame we can feel in that. She said, maybe if I just touch his cloak, he can help. 
She was looking for a God who could cure her shame and meet her in that. Now, let me ask you this. Can you imagine feeling shame without touch? Now, if you came down with a condition, an illness of some kind, or if you had a physical feature, you couldn't do anything about it. It wasn't your fault. You had some physical feature, but no one wanted to touch you. No one wanted to come close to you. We get a little glimpse of this when we get sick, right? And and it's obvious we're sick, and everyone's like, whoop, not going to touch that person. Can you imagine the feeling of that for 12 years of your life? shame of feeling I'm untouchable. No marriage, no intimacy. She's the feeling of I'm unwanted. And in our shame, what does touch communicate? You are wanted. You are worthy. You're worth coming close to. So why all this touch? So God could come as close as he possibly could to our most broken and painful places as people. Death, loss, shame, chronic suffering. He took all the barriers down. He took all the gloves and the oven mittens off, and he said, I'm touching it. That's how close I want to come. There's an illustration I've heard a few times. It goes like this. A little boy... um, who couldn't go to sleep because there was a really bad thunderstorm outside and it's lightning and thunder and he's scared. So his mom comes in the first time and says, it's okay, prays with him, says, God is with you, it's okay. It keeps raining. He still can't go to sleep. Comes in a second time. It's okay, pray pray with you, God is with you, it's okay. He's bigger than this. Another time. He still can't go to sleep. The mom comes in. Says, God is with you. He's more powerful than this storm. But the little boy says, I know, mommy, but I want a God with skin on. When we need to know that God hasn't abandoned us, that He knows, He feels with us, He loves us, that we are wanted and worthy, the gospel tells us we do have a God with skin on. He didn't stay distant and far off and removed from our grief and our pain and shame. He came close, as close as he possibly could. He took it on. He felt it and he touched it. He experienced it. We need a God we can touch. First John, John, one of the other disciples, John, said it like this in his letter. It's there on the screen. He says, this is why we need a God we can touch. Well, it's from the beginning what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed and we have seen it. And we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard and also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. It's underlined there for you what we have touched with our hands. This is absolutely unique to Christianity, that Jesus is a God we can touch. It's so hard to grasp. It's so hard to get our mind around. All other uh, offshoots of Christianity and heresies all start by trying to explain this away. 
How can God get that close? But John says it's not enough that we hear about him. It's not enough that we have seen him and observed him. He had to be touchable. A God we can touch. Without that, the fellowship, the connection, the joy would not be possible. Without the touch, you lose the gospel. We need a God we can touch. This passage says, in Jesus, we have one. Second thing we learn from this passage is the way to Jesus. How did all these people come to experience Jesus' touch? When God came in the form of Jesus to touch us, many people did experience that touch. We're told of five people who Jesus touched or, were, or touched him. But many people did not experience it. Many people missed it. And these stories help explain why that is. It all comes down to the way that people think they can approach God. The way to come to God. Look here at the text again. It seems simple enough. How did they come? They had a need. They just came to him. They just asked him, touch my daughter. Just go up and touch the fringe of his robe. To the question in verse 28 when Jesus says, do you believe? What do they say? Yes, Lord. Very simple response, just two words. It is that simple. All of the people who were touched by Jesus came the same way, by faith. In fact, if you look at Matthew chapter 8 and 9, as I said, there's a ton of healings. There's 10 healings, back to back to back to back to back. So it's a chapter, um, or it's a section, it's a collection of healings that show us who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. But it's also a collection of 10 different pictures of faith. Taken together, they show us what faith is, what genuine and real faith is. I don't know if you have a red letter Bible. Some of you have um, a Bible that has the words of Jesus in red. But if you have that, you'll notice in this section, Jesus is not saying much. He is a man of few words in this section. But when he does say something, it's almost always about faith. In chapter 8, he said, the Roman centurion, what great faith he has. When the disciples were in the storm, he said, what little faith you have. When the friends of the paralytic brought their friend to Jesus, he noticed their great faith. Here he says, woman, your faith has saved you. To the blind man, he says, do you believe? I can do this. Let it be done according to your faith. Jesus makes this point over and over and over again. The people who make their way to me, the people whom I touch, are the people who come by faith. The way to Jesus is faith, always faith alone. It is that simple, but it is not that easy. In fact, faith is the hardest thing about following Jesus and the hardest thing about coming to him. Why would I say that? Our passage shows us why faith is so hard. Because a necessary component, an essential ingredient of genuine and true faith is desperation. Do you see the desperation here? Genuine faith that connects us to Jesus is always 
desperate. But who wants to be desperate? Who wants to say, I'm a desperate person? I know this show happened a long time ago, but who wants to be the desperate housewives of whatever, Orange County or whatever it is, the desperate house husbands? Who wants to be called desperate? We don't want that. We want to be respectable, composed, confident people. But if you think the way to God and connecting to Him is about coming respectable, composed, and confident, our passage says you don't know God and you don't know yourself and your need. Now, let me share a few illustrations. A- after you have a big meal at a restaurant and the, the server comes and says, do you want dessert? And if you've had a big, satisfying meal, most likely you, you'll say no unless you really want that dessert. You're not desperate for dessert, so you can pass it by. Or if you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you need to take, you know, some daily extra vitamins, keep that as a part of your regimen, you're not desperate to take those vitamins. You'll probably miss it here and there. But if you haven't eaten for two days and I say, it's time to eat, why don't you come eat with me? You will be desperate to eat. You won't let anything get in the way between you and that food. If your doctor says, here is the pill you need to survive, you won't let anything get in the way of you getting that pill and taking that pill regularly. You'll be desperate and determined to get it. That's the kind of faith. That's the kind of faith that connects to Jesus. And if you really know yourself, this text says, if you really know Jesus, you can't be casual, you can't be nonchalant, wavering, vacillating, cynical, unsure and cautious. You'll come like the father. You'll come like the woman. And they show us what faith is. This father, he was the leader of the synagogue. That's very important. Because for him to come to Jesus... He's the only religious leader that experienced Jesus' touch in his life. For him to come to Jesus, he had to be desperate enough to risk embarrassment and humiliation. In front of all his peers, the Pharisees, they were questioning Jesus. They were stepping back and distancing themselves from Jesus. They said, what does he have to teach us? He's an untrained peasant, touching sinners, touching the untouchable. That doesn't stop this father. He comes kneeling down before him in a posture of humility. And to do this, he had to let go of something. He had to drop it altogether. He had to let go of the way of works, of coming in his own works. He came by the way of faith alone. He had to let go of saying, I'm too worthy, I'm too good, I'm too respectable to be desperate. Don't I deserve better from God? I'm a synagogue leader. Why is this happening in my life? Doesn't God owe me better? He let all that go because the way of faith humbles the proud. He came desperate. What about the woman? The woman was desperate enough to risk more rejection in her life. According to the law, anything she touched or got near, near to, that would be unclean. So if she touched Jesus, she would also make him unclean. And what if all the people found out about her condition as she was coming up and trying to sneak up and just touch him? On the robe. They would identify her and say, unclean, everybody clear out. More shame. More rejection. 
What's fascinating is she is the first woman in the gospel to come directly to Jesus. Jesus came to women. She's the first one to come straight to him. She might have said, I'm not the right gender. I'm not worthy enough to come. I'm damaged. I'm not good enough. I'm untouchable. She had to let go of the way of works, of trusting in anything of herself and come by faith alone. The way of faith exalts the lowly. And what's so encouraging about her as we look at her story, she didn't have a complete faith. She actually didn't really have an accurate faith. She had kind of this magical faith. She said, if I just touch his robe, maybe I'll be healed. And Jesus looked at her and says, take courage, woman. Your faith has made you well. When we let go of everything else and reach for Jesus, we don't have to have perfect faith. We don't have to have all of our ducks in a row. He responds and he receives that kind of faith. Sometimes the most loving thing God can do for us is to allow us to come to a place of desperation in our lives. So all the things that we trust, all the things that we have our faith placed in, fail us. We have nowhere else to go but to Him. Then, in those moments, we see ourselves most clearly and we can see Him most clearly. And we can learn to trust in Him alone. The way to Jesus, our need for a God we can touch, the way to experience the touch of this God, and finally, the power of a God we can touch. What effect should this have on us? What difference does it make? As I already said this, but just to be clear, this passage doesn't teach us. Come to Jesus with the right faith, and you will have the guarantee of healing here and now. God does, and He can, and He does heal. This passage doesn't teach the guarantee of healing. It actually teaches us something better. Two things. The power of a God we can touch is the power of substitutionary love and the power of invincible life. First, the power of substitutionary love. What did all the people have in common that Jesus touched? There was a leper from a chapter ago, a mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law with a fever. Chapter 9 here, there was this woman, the girl who died, and these blind men. What they all had in common is that they were untouchables, considered unclean in the eyes of the law. They were not to go near people, and they were not to go near to God. We just read this in our CBR reading, if you're tracking with us, in Numbers 5. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites to send away from the camp Anyone who has a defiling skin disease or a discharge of any kind or who is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body, send away male and female alike, send them outside the camp so they will not defile their camp where I dwell among them. The Israelites did so. They sent them outside the camp. Now, the lessons, there's a lot of touching laws in the Old Testament The lessons of those laws beyond just hygiene and health is this. God cannot be touched by sin, by anything unclean or not right. 
and touch symbolically transmits sin and uncleanness, being in a state of not being right with God. Sin has this contagious effect. And Jesus is here. He's breaking all of these rules here in Numbers 5. Specifically, what's he doing touching all these people? It has to be this. There is something more powerful at work in Jesus than the contagious effect of sin, than the power of sin. There is something more powerful at work in Jesus than sin in all of its terrible effects. What is that? It's the love of God, the untouchable sinners. I think the greatest test of a parent's love is the stomach bug. If the word stomach bug don't just like send chills up your spine, you might not have ever experienced the stomach bug or the stomach flu. Um, when, you, when your child has a stomach uh, bug, you're faced with a dilemma, I am, which is I want to care for my child, but am I going to touch them <laughs> to communicate love, like a hug or a touch? Or am I going to quarantine them in a room and only touch them wearing uh, latex gloves or something like that? Why don't we want to touch them? Because we make ourselves vulnerable to the contagion. But we want them to know that we love them and will care for them. But to touch them with nothing else, no gloves, is to make ourselves vulnerable to risk being sick and receiving their condition. This is what's going on with Jesus. When Jesus touches these people, he is taking on their uncleanness, their untouchable status, the consequences of their condition of having to go outside the camp, outside of God's presence. He is giving them his cleanliness. He is giving them his rightness with God, his status, his life through touch. And this is the gospel. This is a foreshadowing of the cross. On the cross, Jesus says, I will be made unclean so you can be made clean. I will be made untouchable so you can be touchable. I will go suffer outside the camp so you can be brought into the camp. I will be banished from God's presence so you can come in. I will lose my fellowship and my connection with God so you can have it. This is how far God has gone to demonstrate his love for us. That in the touch, he takes what is ours and we get what is his. Substitutionary love. But that's not it. The power of a God who touches is the power of an invincible life. This was Jesus' greatest miracle up until this point, raising this little girl from the dead. If it is true, if this really happened, it means Jesus has power over death. To have faith in him is to know you will be resurrected by him, by his touch. God became touchable to become vulnerable, to die the death that we deserve, but also to raise our humanity, our physical humanity, from death to life. This is what awaits all who trust in Jesus. Now look at verses 23 and 25. Jesus went in, he walked in, he's about to do his greatest miracle that he had done yet. 
and everyone is mourning. And he says to them, leave. This, this little girl is not dead. She's sleeping. And what does everybody do? They laugh. They start laughing. <laughs> Ridiculous. This girl's been dead. When we laugh at the word of Jesus, at the word of God, it is a sign that we are hearing God's word correctly. Because it's so outlandish, so ridiculous. If it is not true, it's the most laughable thing in the world. Unless Jesus is who he says he is. If he isn't, faith is the most laughable thing in the world. To have desperate faith, laughable. But if he is, then faith is the least laughable thing in the world. It's the most rational, it's the most reasonable thing anyone can do. Here is one whose touch can bring somebody back from death to life. Why wouldn't I, how couldn't I come to him in desperate faith for all my needs? Jesus in Luke 24, the only time Jesus said, touch me, was after he rose from the dead. His disciples couldn't believe it. They were doubting. He said, touch me. If I'm touchable, it's true, all of it. You are that loved by God, and you have been given the power of an invincible life simply by faith in me. Can I give a few closing application thoughts? I'm going to run through these rather quickly. The need for a God we can touch, the way to a God we can touch, the power of a God we can touch. A few application thoughts. If some people and places are untouchable to us, we are very comfortable in our suburban Orange County existence. If some places and some people are untouchable to us, we will never be a church of compassion. We will never give people a taste of this Jesus. No one is untouchable. No place is untouchable. In a similar way, we will never be a truly multicultural or multi-ethnic church if some people and places are untouchable to us. We'll never give people a taste of a God who came to be touchable. Think about that. One more. One of the greatest resources of the gospel for our digital age is that God is a God we can touch, a God who affirms embodiment, who took on the limits of our humanity, who affirmed and restores physical presence. Our salvation depends and hinges on a God we can touch, who came to touch us. So the limits of our physicality cannot be transgressed, should not be, should not be resisted, but embraced and accepted. There's more to say about this, but people are paying for hugs. You know this, you've read the articles out there. There are services that people give non-sexual hugs. It's just, all, you, all you get is just a hug, and people are paying for physical touch. Elderly who are, sh- are shut-ins, who have no family to visit them, 
are paying. A part of the service is to give them the ministry of touch through a teddy bear or a robot. How tragic is that? Friends, to offer people face-to-face connection, unmediated, undistracted by a screen, to offer them our face-to-face presence and appropriate and meaningful touch, that is a powerful gift that lets people know there is a God who loves them. There is a God of invincible life. If we believe we have the substitutionary love of God and the invincible life of God, really, there's nothing we cannot face. There's nothing that Jesus could ask us to do that's too much. This is why God became touchable. So we would believe that nothing can separate us from his love and nothing can stop his purpose to bring resurrection to all who come to him in desperate faith. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you did not remain far off, but you came close, closer than we would ever imagine, closer than we would ever claim if it were not here in your word that you became a God that we could touch in Jesus. I pray you would meet us now in our places of need. I pray you would meet us now in our places of doubt. I pray you would meet us now in places where we feel distant, separate, and far off from you, that we would draw close in faith, clinging to the truth that you, the eternal God, came that close to us. Help us trust you. Help us let go of all other trusts and trust in you alone. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.